Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, go to 1 Corinthians chapter number six. 1 Corinthians chapter number six. We're gonna be kind of all over the place in the Bible this morning, but we'll be in chapter six, eight, nine, and 10 of 1 Corinthians eventually. Uh, I've really enjoyed this series on spiritual counterfeits. And I want to share with you this morning something that is honestly very personal to me because it took me the better part of a decade to figure out. Probably from age 20 till about age 30, I had to bumble and fumble my way through this. And I wish that I would have had kind of this sermon to just help me and distill a lot of Bible down and compress it for me so I had it in a a bite-sized piece, but I didn't. So nevertheless, it it took a while, but uh, a lot of Bible and a lot of just figuring things out as I went to to ultimately come to uh, what I would consider to be a very biblical rubric for how you should make a decision as a Christian. Uh, We've been talking about these different spiritual counterfeits, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. I'll give a little bit of, of just balance to the topic of mysticism and asceticism next week. But this morning, we're going to get uh, some balance specifically on the topic of legalism that I'm just entitling to do or not to do. That is the question. And if you remember, when we talked about legalism, legalism is a negative thing. You don't want to do it. Uh, but it's grading spirituality by man-made rules. And you may look at your own life and grade your own spirituality by man-made rules, or you may look at someone else and grade them by man-made rules. But either way, it's something that you don't want to do. I was thinking back through some classic examples of this in my life, and one was brought to mind uh, in Bible college. In Bible college, there was someone who had this rule, a man-made rule, it's not in the Bible anywhere, But his rule was that he never put his Bible on the bottom of any sort of stack. You know, you're carrying around books and those sorts of things, and his Bible always stayed on top. So if he had a Bible, it would be here, and maybe there'd be a book or an iPad or something. It was always on on top. And this was out of respect, out of deference to God's Word. In the same way that when we have maybe the American flag and there's another flag flying with it, we'll always put the American flag on top. It's above the... P-O-W-M-I-A flag. It is above the branch of the military flag. It's on top as a way to be deferential. And so that was his heart posture. It was good. It was beautiful that he wanted his Bible to be on top so he could be deferential to God's word. The problem was that he walked around and wanted to scathe anybody else who did not put their Bible on top. Right? His man-made rule that was at its core designed to be God-honoring that I have no problem with became this measuring stick that now if you didn't do this, you were somehow less spiritual. Now, the problem with that is that the Bible never says put your Bible on top, right? There's someone else that may say, you know what? I put my Bible uh, on the bottom because I want the Bible to be the foundation for everything that I do, right? And someone else says, I want to put it in the middle because I want God's word to be in the center of my entire life. Like, they could all be God-honoring ways. God don't care where you put your Bible, Top, middle, bottom, he really doesn't care. 
you can honor him in, in whatever you do, and he appreciates whatever your hot, heart posture is, but you don't take your man-made rule of putting your Bible in a certain location and then begin to grade other people spiritually off of your man-made rule. That's, that's a problem. So what do we do, though, with rules? Right, because some would say, well, if, if we're not going to have all these rules where, where we're judging each other and, and we're looking and we're grading each other, like, that could create a free-for-all. You know, if it's not all this black and white everything and there's all these gray areas and, and someone is putting their Bible on the top and someone's putting their Bible on the bottom, it's anarchy. Like, what are we doing? What, what could happen? Couldn't this go sideways? Couldn't we now have a lack of rules and... And, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And honestly, that's a valid fear. That's a valid concern. The Bible actually addresses the opposite end of the spectrum. Not the person who has all the rules and they're grading everybody, but the person who now has no rules. Jude 4 refers to it as someone who takes the grace of God and they turn it into lasciviousness or they turn it into sensuality. They take God's grace and the freedom that they have in Jesus and now they begin to do whatever they want and say, well, I have the grace of God. He'll forgive me. There, there's, there's no rules. And Jude calls that ungodly. He says God will judge that. So how do we balance this? How do we balance the freedom that we have in Jesus and not having a bunch of rules heavy, heavy hanging over our head? And trying to make a decision for ourselves on what would be best, on what would be wise, on what would be spiritual. And then how do we balance what's best for ourselves with what's best for someone else? And do those always correspond with each other? What do we do? So I'm going to try my best to help you this morning to know how to balance this. And we're going to start and we're going to end with this little chart. And if you miss it and you want to take a picture of it at the end or something, you, you can grab it then. Uh, first of all, credit where credit is due, Vaughn Roberts uh, in, in a book that he wrote years ago, came up with a chart that was similar to this. It's not exactly this one. I've, I've modified it to how I think it, it fits best. But the core of it was he designed in a book, which is a compression of how one might um, make decisions as a Christian. And we're going to walk through it today. And I think it will help us balance out how not to be legalistic, but how to make decisions on what to do or not to do at times in a way that is Christ-honoring. So where you want to start is question number one, does God allow it? There's always a place to start. Does God clearly say something in his word of do or don't do this? And God has quite a few of those. And taking God's rules and insisting that you should obey God's rules is not legalism. That's obedience. Right? Taking God's rules and saying you should obey God's rules is not cultish. That's Christianity. Jesus said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And there are many commandments. Some commandments come in the form of principles, and then you get to kind of fill in the gaps. Some commandments are just straightforward, to the point, do or don't. But there are many commandments in the Bible, something like love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a lot of ways you practically work that out, but that's a commandment. There are commandments to not be greedy, but to be generous. There's a commandment, if you, if you are unsaved, if you don't know Jesus, if you're lost in your sin, to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus. And then after that, if you're a Christian, there's a commandment to be baptized. And that's not a nebulous, well, how do I do this? It's, it's pretty straightforward. Do this and follow me in obedience. And I could go on and on. 
There are commands in the Bible, and you always want to start with, does God clearly weigh in on this? And if he tells me to do it, I do it. If he tells me not to do it, I don't do it. End of discussion. I don't got to think about it anymore. I don't have to pray about it anymore. I don't have to go searching for something in the Greek. I just, it's very clear. Those do exist for us. Now, there is a word of caution. You do want to be very careful that you do not take your man-made rule and marry it to a verse to act as though your man-made rule is God's rule. And I've seen a lot of this. I grew up in church, and so I had a lot of Bible. You know, there was the nursery and coloring sheets of Jesus as a shepherd, or there was, uh, there was you know, Sunday school, and then there was youth group. And, and then I went to a Christian school, so I had Bible class in Christian school. And so I'm 17, and I'm going off to Bible college. And I get four years. I get a bachelor's degree in theology. And then I do a, a master's degree. It took me a year to do that. And then a couple more years of postgraduate study to get my MDiv and, and all the schooling. The most, what I feel, profitable years of learning the Bible and growing just in what the Bible says and how to apply it to my life were my first and second year of Bible college, when I was a freshman and a sophomore. I was 18 and 19 years old. And it was the most helpful for me because for the first time in my life, I began to be taught how to study the Bible, how to study the Bible in context. How to not just cherry pick the Bible for what I wanted, but how to take a verse and to understand, well, what other verses are around that? And what did the book say? And what was, what was the intent of this verse? And it was beautiful and it was awesome, but it was also super discouraging and made me mad many times. Because I had developed like this Mount Rushmore of preachers over the years as, a, as you know, middle school and in high school. These, these guys that I love to hear preach and teach God's word. And I began to discover for the first time, I didn't know, that they were taking verses and they were gluing them to their man-made rule and preaching them as though they were divine. And it was, it was very disheartening. And, and it, it began to, in many ways, break trust. Like, can I trust what that guy behind the pulpit is saying any longer? And they, they were great communicators still. They were very funny still. They were very motivational still. But like my Mount Rushmore preachers got ruined. I was like, is there any good preaching out there? And I quickly discovered there was. And I developed a new Mount Rushmore and it all, you know, resolved itself in a matter of about 18 months. But I began to see what was happening, that people would oftentimes take their opinion, but they would glue it to the Bible and then it would get really tricky to discern, was that God's rule or their rule? So I could give you a lot of examples of this, but one of the classic texts that people do this with is, uh, is this text in 1 Corinthians 6. We were told that our body is the temple of God, so therefore we should glorify God in our body. Now, the application of that verse that I've heard over the years has been so divergent, it's laughable. I've heard that your body is the temple, so you shouldn't smoke. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't go into the temple and get a pile of leaves and light them on fire and have the smoke alarms going off everywhere. You wouldn't light up the temple with smoke, so you shouldn't do that. And it kind of ignores that there was an altar of incense, but that's a whole different conversation. You know, don't smoke. That's what your body the temple means. I heard your body's a temple, so that means don't get tattoos. You wouldn't graffiti the temple, so don't graffiti this temple, you know. I've heard your body's a temple, so don't eat sugar. 
you know, sugar, it's going to ruin you, you're going to be overweight, you're going to have diabetes, and, and you need to take care of the temple and maintain, so don't eat sugar. Or fast two days a week. It's just regular routine maintenance in the same way you would maintain your car or your home. You need to maintain the temple, so you should fast twice a week. Once a week, definitely not enough. You're not doing it right. It needs, it needs to be twice a week. I've heard the opposite end where your body is the temple, and look at the temple in the Bible. It was nice, it was ornate, it had some bling. So, you know, do some self-care, get some massages, uh, get a pedicure or a manicure. Ladies, can we get a witness? Like, body's the temple, get a pedicure, right? You know, gold everywhere was very nice. So get some diamonds and make sure that your temple looks good and very presentable. Make sure that you have very fashionable clothes all the time, designer clothes, in fact. Now, do you begin to see the problem? Your body as a temple can't mean don't smoke, don't get tattoos. While you're at it, don't dye your hair purple because none of the walls are purple. And fast twice a week while you get a pedicure and go buy some diamonds. It can't mean that. But it's very simple. I know what it means. You say, how do you know what it means? Like, who gives you the authority? Well, I can read. <laughs> like, when you actually put the verse in context, it becomes super clear. So for, just humor me, 1 Corinthians 6, this is the body is the temple section. Verse 15, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Now what's this talking about? It's talking about sleeping with a prostitute. You say, well, that can't be all it's talking about. Well, kind of, keep reading. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Speaking about the marriage union, when a husband and wife come together, the two become one flesh in a quite literal sense. And don't you know this is happening? And verse 17, but he that is joined into the Lord is one spirit. So flee fornication, period, full stop. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. There's lots of sins that you can do that do not affect your body. You can be prideful. You can be greedy. This is one that does affect the body. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What is the context? The context is sexual purity and fornication. It is abundantly clear. It is a passage that is very anti-American. This is anti-every sitcom that's on TV today where everybody dates everybody and everybody sleeps with everybody and everybody's having a good time, he's saying, no, don't do that. This is anti-hookup culture. This is anti what happens at most public universities where someone goes off to college and they major in partying rather than in biology or whatever it is that they're supposed to study. And everyone's just having a good time and sowing their wild oats and kids are being kids and you know what, just have some fun while you're there. You'll have to grow up eventually so you can be friends with benefits and you can sleep with them and you can party and you can have a one night stand and you can do all of that. It's anti all of that. It's anti what happens inside of Christian dating that most Christians who date will say no, not hookup culture, not this, just do whatever you want. But most Christians who date, I shouldn't say most, at times, there are Christians who date, and they say, you know what? We, we've done a good job. We're trying to do this in a God-honoring way, but now we're a year into dating. And you know what? I'm going to put a ring on our finger next month, and then we're going to get married eight months from now. So, so what's it going to hurt? I know, I know it's a little premature, but, you know, what, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. I'm sure God will wink at it. You've got to test drive the car before you buy it. All that stuff that people use, and they reason away, and, the, and they lo- It is anti all of that. 
They're saying, don't do that. Next verse. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. There's a context there. Your body is the temple means do sexuality God's way, in short. And it is, it is so not only unfair, not only unwise, but unhealthy for someone to take that verse and to begin to fix it to their man-made rule of whatever they want you to believe and use that as a hall pass to try to turn their rule into God's rule. That's not okay. But God does have some rules and you need to follow his rules. The second question you ask yourself, does God allow it? If no, don't do it. Okay, if yes, next question, does my conscience allow it? And we don't talk a lot about conscience in church, but we should. There's a decent amount of press in the Bible about this. We all have a conscience. To be clear, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you also have the Holy Spirit. Two different things. We have a conscience that is God-given and is beautiful. It is designed to, to help us know what is right and wrong at times. But your conscience is not infallible. The Bible is very clear on this. Your conscience can be like overly sensitive, what is called a weak conscience. It can be too tender, and it can convict you of things that aren't actually wrong. And you can feel as though they are wrong or that you're dirty when you're doing them, or somehow God will be mad at you when God is not mad at you because of it. It can be overactive. Your conscience can also be what's called seared or hard, where it should convict you of things, but it doesn't because you become numb to it, and you've done it over and over and over again. And it used to convict you, but it doesn't any longer. And your conscience can become misaligned. Now, what do you do with a misaligned conscience? Well, you try to align it with God's word. But that, that at times takes time. So if I have a misaligned conscience and it is convicting me of something, or maybe it is completely aligned, it's telling me don't do this. Should I listen to it? Yes. What will happen is what happens with your car. If your tires are misaligned, the solution is go to the tire shop, go to Highland Tire, and get them aligned. But if you don't have time in your schedule to get your tires aligned and they're misaligned, don't drive to Florida. You're going to ruin some stuff. And if your conscience is misaligned and it's, it's, it's not there yet, don't drive to Florida on that thing. You'll ruin some stuff. This is what Romans 14 says. And Romans 14 is this beautiful passage where Paul is arguing hard that A, Christians shouldn't argue about dumb stuff. B, that there are many things that are permissible now that weren't permissible in a, in a Jewish culture that you didn't have to like observe the Sabbath, that you didn't have to eat a kosher diet, lots of these things. But he gets to the end of the passage and here's what he says. Hast thou faith, verse 22, have it to thyself before God. Look, if, if you are clear with God, does God allow it? He don't care. My conscience, it's clear. Okay, go ahead. But, verse 22, happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. That's, that's a key phrase. Let's start with the word happy. Happy or blessed. Raise of hands. Who wants to be happy or blessed? That, that's an easy buy-in, right? Want to be happy, want to be blessed, okay? Happy or blessed is this person 
who has something that he is allowing. It says at the end of the verse, there's this thing that he's allowing. Kosher diet, don't matter no more. Eat bacon all you want, you know. Go ahead, do this. He's allowing something. But you're only blessed if you are not condemning yourself while you are allowing it. There is a world that exists where you say, you know what, this isn't wrong biblically. It's morally neutral. But inside, I just, I just don't have a piece of it. I just feel, I, I feel guilty. I feel wrong about it. What's happening? Your conscience is happening. And what he's saying is, don't do that. It's not going to lead to happiness. It's not going to lead to blessedness. Just, just let your conscience guide there. Try to align it if you can, but, but let it guide. Next verse, verse 23. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith of sin. What he's saying is you will hurt yourself. So you have to pay attention to this. You don't want your conscience to run wild and to be seared or to be overly tender. But at the same time, you have one and you can't just ignore that. Now, in the same way that you don't take your man-made rule and glue a verse to it, you don't take your conscience and glue the Holy Spirit to it. There's a difference. And there are people that will that will take their conscience and just constantly make it the Holy Spirit. That's not fair. You, your conscience is not my conscience. They're different. And you have to live with yours, and I have to live with mine. We're both going to give an account of ourselves to God. So you don't over-spiritualize your own conscience. You say, well, how would I know if that's my conscience that's getting after me or the Holy Spirit getting after me? I don't, I don't have a clean rule of thumb for you, but the best one I got is that if there's a question mark, it's probably your conscience. Generally, the Holy Spirit's going to be really demonstrable, and you're going to be able to discern if, if that's him or not, but you have this thing that you need to listen to. So question one, does God allow it? If he does, I can go to question two. Does my conscience allow it? If that does, I have to go to question three. Does my God-given authority allow it? Because there is such a thing as God-given authority that oftentimes puts rules on you that aren't spiritual. They're just things. They're just rules. They're just practical. Take Billy, for example. Billy is a fictional 12-year-old. Billy wants a cell phone. Not only does Billy want a cell phone, he wants every social media app that is popular for a teenager to be loaded on there. He wants Snapchat. He wants TikTok. He wants Instagram. He wants to be real. He wants it all loaded on there. And not only does Billy want it loaded on there, Billy wants to be able to take his cell phone to bed and to lay in bed all night and, and play and look and see what people are doing and like this and thumb that and send a picture of himself and all, all the stuff. Billy's parents don't feel that this is wise for Billy at age 12. That's their choice. They're his parents. And Billy says, well, it's not a sin. Show me in the Bible where God says that a 12-year-old shouldn't have a cell phone. Well, show me in the Bible where it says that Snapchat is the devil. Show me. It's not in there. And Billy also says, I've been listening to Pastor Mark. My conscience, it doesn't prick me at all. My conscience is as clear as a cucumber. I'm good. So I should get us right? That's what you said. Does God allow it? Does my conscience allow it? Cool. I get it. No, 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 Billy. You got God-given authority. A mom and a dad who are there to make decisions. And mom and dad, don't over-spiritualize it. You don't have to invoke prayer or God in everything. Do pray about it. Do seek God's wisdom. Don't misunderstand me. Do. But don't make it a God rule every time. Billy, listen. 
You may not understand, I could have been making the wrong decision, but we don't feel that it's wise for you to have a cell phone at age 12. I know all your friends do, and I know your conscience is clear. I don't have a verse for it. I just think it's practical for you right now, and, and you need to trust me as a mom and dad. Now, that's hard, because odds are, what is 12-year-old Billy going to do? He's going to throw a fit. Not in a two-year-old way. He's more sophisticated than that, Right? Billy is going to stonewall mom and dad, perhaps. Give them one-word answers to everything. How was school? Good. You, you learn anything? No. You want ice cream? Sure. But what's Billy doing? Billy is emotionally blackmailing his parents right now to try to get his way, right? He's throwing his own version of a fit. And if you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 in the room, let me talk to you. I love you. It's very human, it's very natural, but it's very immature. It would be more emotionally mature for you as a 15-year-old or whatever age you are, if you're a teenager in the room, to say, you know what? I need to learn how to have a good attitude even when someone makes a decision that I don't like for me. That's, that's a very emotionally mature thing to do. And I'll, I see some of you teenagers right now, smiles on your faces. Okay, it's, it's a good word. <clears throat> now, Billy has a dad. He's fictional too. His name's Bobby. Bobby's not 12. Bobby's 42. Bobby thinks the church should start a softball league. Bobby, he loved baseball. He loved softball. And man, sportsman's night. Didn't Mike just say, lives are going to be changed, sportsman's night. You know, let's get some lives changed with some softball, you know. Let's, let's, let's have, have a game here, get a backstop. I'll set it up. So Bobby meets with Pastor Mark and says, Pastor Mark, hey, I have this idea. Here's this program. It would be fantastic. But Pastor Mark has to weigh it out. Man, I like softball, that's cool. But you know what, there's a program and there's other things going on that's going to take some time, some resources that, you know, I think it would clutter the schedule too much. I, I don't know that softball league is the best idea right now, Bobby. Now what's Bobby prone to do? Bobby's prone to throw a fit. Not in a two-year-old way, he's more sophisticated than that. Bobby's going to get his French. Can you believe this? I told them I would even run it. They won't even let me run a, a, a softball league. You know, you should go, you should meet with them too and tell them you want a softball league. Let's get, let's get a petition going. And now Bobby's going to stir the pot over something silly because of softball. Now, in both instances, what is happening is there's a God-given spiritual authority in a home or in a church. And at times they have to make decisions that aren't really that spiritual of decisions. They're just pragmatic. They're just practical and this exists for a purpose. Like pets have owners so they can care for them and make sure that they're good and decide if the $3,000 bill at the vet is actually worth it or not, right? Like that's your job. Not a, not a fun job, but that's your job. Kids have parents to help them and protect them and to care for them and to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And homes have dads not so that they can have mom and the kids go serve them and make them a sandwich and do whatever they want. No, so they can be the chief servant, so they can love them well and that they can do their best to protect and to provide for that home and to make sure that my wife and my children are flourishing and are growing to the best of my, of my ability. Churches have pastors to lead and to feed. Citizens have government so that government can make rules to, to hopefully be a blessing to those that want to keep the rules and keep people safe, but be a terror to those that are wanting to be unrighteous or do evil things. Like government has those rules and there's nothing spiritual about a speed limit. At all. It, there's no verse for it. 
But it is a system that God has designed. And every one of those, whether it's the home or whether it's the church or whether it's the government, they all have these rules that have to be implemented so that things can go smoothly. We have a rule here as a church that if you want to serve in kids ministry, nursery, kids ministry at all, you have to be background checked. It, it runs you through a database and tells us if there's some sort of, of criminal history with, with children, and we think that's wise and safe. I don't have a verse for it. God never told me to. Insurance did, but God did not. <laughs> and you know what? Insurance made a good practical suggestion. There's no problem with our church having that rule. You're legalistic. You have a rule that's not in the Bible. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is taking a rule that's not in the Bible and then insisting that you're somehow unspiritual because you don't want to do it. Look, if you don't want, because background check's too much hassle for you and you don't want to serve in kids' ministry, fine. I hope you get over it one day and you'll come serve, but you're not unspiritual for that. We're not talking morals here. We're not talking ethics here. We're not talking right or wrong. We're just talking practical. So it's, it's, it's good if you're in a position of authority, don't take all of the pragmatic functions and the house rules that you have and insist that somehow they are no longer morally neutral or they're spiritual and judge people off of those. You don't judge people off of those. You want to look at God's word first. Does God allow it? If so, does my conscience allow it? If so, does my God-given authority allow it? Now, if you're check, 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 yes. Now you're in freedom. What do I do with my freedom? I'm allowed to do this or not do it. I can choose. My choice. What do you do then? You say, well, you, you exercise your freedom. No, I mean, we're Americans. And this, this is very, what I'm about to tell you is anti-American in many ways. Because as Americans, we say, we fought, we bled, we died for our freedoms. Freedom isn't free. You know, we said no taxation without representation. We said don't tread on me. We stuck it to the man. We had the Revolutionary War. We got our freedoms. We, we fight for those freedoms. We love those freedoms. We protect those freedoms. We exercise our freedoms. And I don't have a problem with that. But spiritually... You now have spiritual freedom. And guess what? Somebody fought for that. And somebody bled for that. And somebody died for that. But it wasn't you. There was one. His name is Jesus. He fought and he bled and he died so that you could have spiritual freedom. And what he says to you is that you should do what he did. That in many times he laid down his freedom like he willingly put himself on a cross for the benefit of other people. And you are instructed in 1 Corinthians, there's this three pack of questions that you should ask yourself if you're in an area of freedom of should you exercise it or not. So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to look at this. If you don't mind, put the chart back up for me one more time. And we're gonna look at, once you get down to, should I exercise my freedom? You wanna ask yourself three questions to help serve as guidelines and guardrails for if you should, in fact, go ahead in this area of freedom. The first question is, what is the effect on other Christians? This is in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. It's actually very similar in many ways 
to Romans 14, where they're arguing about what you can eat and not eat under certain situations. And Paul says this at the very end of the chapter. This is his conclusion on this particular topic. Wherefore, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 8, if meat makes my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, Paul has, he has fought tooth and nail, and he has argued till he was blue in the face that there was not a problem with meat. He is abundantly clear. He's so clear that God doesn't care, that he's not going to grade you spiritually, that this is an area of freedom for him. But he says, I have to ask myself, what is the effect on my fellow believer? And there are many times where love is more important than my freedom. And this is going to affect them, or this is going to trip them up, or their, their conscience is a little off kilter here. So I, out of a heart posture of love, will put them first. And if that means that I change this, or I give up some of my freedom, then so be it. I love them enough to do that, not just trounce them with all of my freedom. It's a beautiful thing. What's the question you ask? What's the effect on my fellow believer? Is this going to hurt them? Question number two is in chapter number nine, what is the effect on non-Christians? Because the gospel is more important than my freedom. My love for my, my brother is more important than my freedom, and my love for the gospel is more important than my freedom. Chapter nine, verse 19. Though I be free from all men. He's very clear on his freedom. He is, he is not... It's not squishy at all. Yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. I'm going to take my freedom. You know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to haul off and I'm going to serve them. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to set it to the side. Verse 20, unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them without the law as without the law being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. Here's what he's saying. I do polar opposite things sometimes. Sometimes I'm over here with these Greek people and they're eating whatever and drinking whatever and they're having a good time and we just, we have a feast because I want to have a platform with them and I don't want to be like, no, I'm not going to eat your mama's cooking. They, I, fine. And there are other times where they have all these systems and all this, you know, all this stuff, and I got some beef jerky in my pocket, but they would be mad at me, so I'm just going to leave it in there and not even let them know it's there so that I can love them. And he does very opposite things, but it's very consistent in that he's trying to have a platform with these people and not be overly offensive so that he can give them the gospel. This, some would say, well, that's situational ethics. No, we're not talking about something that is right and wrong here. It's not something that God is like, you should or you shouldn't. It's not ethical, it's not moral. It's just what is the advantage that this gives the gospel? You see this with, I just, Seth and Nicole caught my eye. You see this with our missionaries all the time. That missionaries have to understand the culture that they minister to. And, and there's many things that are just like culturally appropriate. That they're not right or wrong. It's just like, you know what? This is how they dress, and this is what they do before the meal, and this is what they do after the meal, and this is how they have this, I don't know, this national holiday that's in the middle of May. I've never heard of it, but we're going to celebrate it with them. Why? So that I can have an audience with them. And this, this is all over the place in the scriptures. That I'm, I'm going to kind of adjust my behavior so that the gospel has, has a platform. Verse number 22, to the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. 
And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Hey, I'm going to adjust what I'm doing based off of who I'm ministering to. I'm not going to adjust what I'm doing when it comes to what God said. I'm not going to ignore his rules. But these areas of freedom, I can choose to set them to the side so that I can give the gospel an audience. And then question number three, what is the, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Because my spiritual health is more important than my freedom. There are some things that aren't wrong. They're just dumb. Some things aren't wrong. They're just impractical. They're not helpful. This is what he says in chapter 9, or chapter 10, excuse me, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. It's not always helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Not everything builds up. And you have to know yourself. You have to have maybe your spouse or other people that know you that can give practical suggestions. And here's here's the trick. Your your goal as a Christian is to say, I think this is pretty straightforward. Does God allow it? Does my conscience allow it? Does my authority allow it? Okay, it's freedom. So is this going to negatively affect like a believer? Will it negatively affect a non-believer? Will it negatively affect my spiritual life? And guess what? The answer that you curate for yourself to the best of your ability before God could be a completely different answer than someone else curates for themselves in, in the freedom area. Now, I know if you want everything black and white cookie cutter and not gray, you hate this. But it is what it is. That's okay. It's in those moments that you don't take, well, you know what? Let me give you an example. I'm dating Maggie. Now, this is an unfair illustration because our first year of dating was long distance. But let's say we're, uh, we're, we're together in the same town and we're dating. You know what? I want to do things God's way. God tells me to keep my hands off of her until I'm married pretty much. So you know what? Let's, let's, let's try to figure out how should we best date. You know, should, should I go over to her apartment at 11 o'clock at night and watch a movie? There's not a rule against it. I don't know if that's the best decision in the world. You know, why don't we make kind of a rule for our life that we're not just going to be together really late at night by ourselves watching movies. You know, that, that could not be pretty in the end. You know what? Why don't we go a step further? Why don't we, why don't we just have a chaperone on all of our dates? Why don't there always someone be with us? So we're going to make a rule that we always date in a chaperoned way. There's someone in the car with us. There's someone at the restaurant with us. We don't date alone. Now, that may be pragmatically helpful for our relationship. It's perfectly permissible for us to do that. That could be a great way for us to honor God. But it would be legalistic for me to look at somebody else who's dating and say, well, they don't have a chaperone. I guess they don't want to honor God. I guess they just want to play with fire, don't they? They want to live on the edge, get as close to temptation as they can without actually doing anything. That's a problem. Because now I've taken my area of freedom and tried to adjust it for what was best for my relationship with the Lord, but now I'm taking my freedom and I'm starting to force them on other people as though there are spiritual guidelines for them. Can't do that. You get the balance? When you really understand it, it is so beautiful and so balanced that it would be impossible to come up with anything better. 
Now, I'll leave you with a case study on this. I'm not going to read the, the text to you just for sake of time this morning, but I did put them in your notes. They're on the very back page of your notes, and you can study them in your own time. There's Acts 15, and there's Acts 16, and there's Galatians chapter number 2. And if you don't understand what I just gave you as far as a decision-making rubric, then this will it'll blow your mind, and you won't know what to do with it. But here's what happens. Acts 15 there's this, this meeting of like the spiritual higher up, so to speak, where they're trying to decide, you know, how should we handle this and what should we do here? And this issue keeps coming up over and over and over again of whether all these Old Testament principles still and laws are binding on the New Testament Christians. And what they come up with is, no, they're not. You don't have to observe the Sabbath on Saturday, and you don't have to eat Passover meal, and you don't have to have a kosher diet, and you don't have to do these things. But one of the things that was included there was the issue of circumcision. If, if you were outside of Judaism in the Old Testament, and you wanted to come into Judaism, and you're, you're a man, then that was required. And there became this issue of, like, do these people that are becoming Christians who are, who are men, do they, do they have to be circumcised? And there's this clear ruling, like, no. Nah, -uh. that, that's, not, that's not a thing. So much so that the church sends Paul and his buddy with letters to these churches that are in these Gentile areas where maybe they, they were, they've heard this is a thing, they'll have to do this, to send letters to tell them very clearly, very explicitly, this, this is not a thing, you don't have to do this. Okay, great, fantastic. Flip the page, Acts 16. Paul has Timothy, his protege. Timothy has a Greek dad and didn't have the Jewish customs and there was no circumcision as part of their home. And Paul takes Timothy and he's like, yo, Tim, we're about to go over here and try to win these people to the Lord and a lot of them are Jewish and we're ministering to them and, you know, I, I think they're going to have it stuck in their crawl. You should get circumcised, pal. Now that, that, is, that is a sacrificing your freedom, like to some extreme ways. What is it, buddy? Not an issue, not right or wrong, God doesn't care, but then you're telling him that he needs to do it. But then to make things even crazier, go to Galatians 2, there's this other protege that Paul had named Titus, who also had a Greek daddy. Same boat as Timothy. And Paul tells Titus, don't get circumcised, bro. Now let me figure this out. Is it a thing or is it not a thing? Should he do it or should he not do it? You said God didn't care, and you sent letters to the churches to say so, but then you told this guy that he should, and you told this guy that he shouldn't. How do I reconcile this? This feels really hypocritical, buddy. It's not hypocritical in the least. Paul is uniformly consistent. Is this a God thing? Nope. Next question. Is this a conscience thing? Nope. Next question. And he gets all the way down to this is an area of freedom. And he begins to apply the questions that I gave you. Will this hurt my brother? Will this hurt the gospel? Will this hurt my life spiritually? And in Timothy's case, who he was ministering to, it was going to give him an advantage for the gospel. And so he went to great lengths, actually, to, to try to literally, to the Jew, I became his Jew. Like, he went to great lengths to do it. In Titus's case, there was a different group of people who really didn't have an interest in the gospel, but were trying to force feed all these Jewish things like down the church's throat. And Paul said, stand up to them and say no and prove it to them. No, we're not giving in to you. Two different guys, 
two different contexts with two completely different pieces of advice, but all of them fit the questions of freedom. And one, it would have hurt the gospel if he didn't do it. And another, it would have hurt the gospel if he did do it. That, that's biblical like decision-making in a nutshell. You say, okay, so what you're telling me, God's word rules over me. I listen to my conscience. Is there an authority figure thing here? And let's take my freedom and let's put others, the gospel, and, and even my own spiritual health first. Yes. But what if they do something different than me? Like the person who sits across the aisle or is in my small group. Like what if they do something different than me? That's okay. That's okay. Not in an issue where God's been clear, but an issue of freedom. That's okay. They may raise their kids slightly different. Get over it. They may educate their kids slightly different. Get over it. They, they may have some function where it looks different than yours. That's okay. They're going to give an account of themselves to God, not to you. So you be responsible to you before God, and you be responsible before, uh, they'll be responsible for themselves before God. And sometimes you'll have a Timothy and a Titus who are doing different things, but they're both doing it out of a heart to please the Lord. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 10 tells you, after all of this kind of decision-making tree, you get to the really famous one. Verse 31 in chapter 10. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, just do it all to the glory of God. Just know that one day you can stand before him and say, hey, here's what I did, and I did it to please you out of a pure heart. And if you can say that, you don't have to point the finger at them. That's okay. You just focus on that.